0: Hello there. This interview that you're about to hear was originally done by me, Sam Roscoe, or Chris Prince for the Blue Moon Podcast sometime between 2009 and now. That means if there's anything that sounds a bit out of date, or if there's anything that's an obvious topic that we've not asked the guest about, it's probably because the interview is from a long time ago. This show is basically the Blue Moon Podcast interview archive. All of the new interviews that we do with former city players and managers will go live on the Blue Moon Podcast first, so if you like what you hear then please go and subscribe to that and there's a new show every Friday with a look at everything on and off the pitch for City but for now enjoy the end of this generic recorded message and enjoy the interview with the person whose name is in the title of this episode I could never have written that book whilst, whilst my dad was alive that's was,
1: that was a long shot of it really obviously I'd, I'd suffered the abuse at the hands of Barry Bennell when I was about 11 years well I was about 11 you know, I was 11 years old and, and for the, for a couple of years after that and it was just something that um, I, I could never ever let my dad be, become aware of. Um, you know, I knew from the first day that had happened. It, it, it was something I'd have to keep from my dad for forever. The career was over, but obviously I couldn't. I couldn't write about it was a lie, really, because I knew that uh, what had happened to me defined my life in many ways, and uh, certainly defined my relationship with my, with my, with my father and, and whatever. And so, my dad. My dad died sadly. Uh, at the age of 66, pretty obviously, pretty young, he uh, deteriorated very badly. In over a a month, I was in Mumbai with him. Uh, we got him back to Withenshaw and uh, passed away a week later, 2010. And really, that was no, that wasn't the moment where I said I'll do this. It was it was the moment where I could. Um, as soon as I started writing, I realised that the abuse had, had to be in there because it, it, was, it was really going to define the story and uh, that wasn't me deciding that. That was just what, what happened when I started writing. I got to understand better the relationship I'd had with my dad and, uh, and the sort of devastating effects the, the abuse had had, which previously I maybe, I maybe wasn't as clear in my own mind about. So I'd written three or four pages, um, knew what the book was about, Three, three or four chapters, so I knew what the book was about, and then um, we had problems with the business in uh, two th- early two thousand, well, late two thousand fourteen, culminating in early two thousand and fifteen. Uh, at which point we lost the site, we lost, uh, lost everything to us, including my computer, including the future chapters I'd written. Uh, what I did gain at that point was a bit of time on my hands, so uh, I literally just started. From day one, really, I think I'm actually pretty sure I started the day my dad died in 2010, and uh, went back to, to day one and and uh, and did the whole thing. To be honest with you, I, you know, I didn't speak to anybody about it uh, other than my close family saying I was doing it. And it was, in many ways, it was a great great experience. I think the the, the word they use is cathartic. I don't, I'm not sure I know what that means, but uh, I always say yes when they ask me. Um, and it was really there was a lot, obviously a lot of difficult memories, a lot of um, sort of a lot of it was about trying to explain myself in many ways. That you know, I'd, I'd write something down and and say that don't sound so good. You're gonna have to just explain yourself there. And I, and I was able to do that. You know, I've always considered myself a pretty honest guy, and, and I wanted to tell an honest story. And. Um, and that's what I did and, and the Shades of Blue is obviously obviously Shades of Blue in terms of the blue moments I've, I've, I've had in my life and all sort of going back to that that abuse but obviously it, it, you know it, it's Shades of Man City as well that's a, that's a key element to it so um, not only was I telling my own story I was telling I think the story of City as a, as a fan going back to uh, probably in many ways as back as the, the mid-50s when you know the stories my dad used to tell me and, and the ups and downs of the club and uh so that that's it was all about, and I, I spent an awful lot of time, to be honest, on YouTube looking at old videos and games. And I'd I'd go, you know, I wanted to get the detail in there, and I'd, I'd go to particular games that maybe I'd played in or, or I'd, I'd watched, and I'd end up going all over the place watching watching games from different eras, and uh, that was that, that was a brilliant experience. I mean, I was many many nights, you know, early morning, I was up I was up doing it till sort of two three o'clock in the morning, and I, I found it found the whole process great. Uh so that's where it came from. I then um had, had these hundred thousand words on my computer, just in a word document, decided spoke spoke originally to Ian, Cheeseman, just to say, look, where, where do I go with this? Um and he and he suggested, well, you know, surely Joanne likes you where you need to go. So uh put a call in, I think to Paul, um arranged to meet them. Uh it was a, that was a fairly difficult meeting, to be honest, because obviously I, I had to explain what the book was about, and uh, so I think because Paul had been around at the time, you know, not, I don't think Paul and I were together at 11, but not long after that, and certainly his, his brother had, had, had known Benel, and so um, kind of struck a nerve with them too and they, you know it was a, a fairly difficult sort of 10 or 15 minutes, got ourselves over that, and and Joanne decided that you know it was something she wanted to get involved with, so we agreed we'd um, get going with it. We approached a literary agent who came on board with us, and and uh, and then managed to get us a publishing deal. So that's that was the process of it. We, we then, to be fair, completely re- rewrote the whole thing. It, you know, it was it's the same book in many ways. It's just you know written professionally now, whereas my my original version was. was probably how I'd speak in a, in a pub if I'm speaking to a lot of mates. And, and so Joanne just uh, hopefully, well, she absolutely did make, make a, a brilliant job of, of, of turning that into a, a professional production.
0: Was that, when you put it down on the page, was that, that the first time you'd, you'd ever kind of opened up about that?
1: Well, no, because the, the abuse was 79 originally, so going probably through to 81, 82... You know, in some ways, it sounds stupid. But I was quite lucky in some ways because the, the abuse wasn't as, as um, certainly as prolonged or or as uh, persistent or or as as high level as some other people you know that I know now and consider as friends. And and but it was there, and, and uh, it was it was every time I was I was going to this. You know, my dad was taking me to. Uh, the guy's house or the guy's flat he was, was allowing me to go on holidays and weekends but obviously my dad was blissfully unaware of, of what was going on but as I said I, it was just I was never ever going to speak to anybody and then it was it was 18 years that so my whole football career came and went I'd never sort of spoken a word to anybody and then in about 97, 98 my career was Well, it was finished. I I definitely had my final operation. I never played again after that, although I was was still at Sheffield United. I just got a call out of the blue from the police, asking to speak to me. They wanted to speak to me specifically about Barry Bennell. I knew at that time he'd been... I think he was in in the States. He'd been um, in prison for for rape in the States. And they were trying to get him back over here. They were trying to extradite him. There was also a programme on TV at the time, a programme called Dispatches, which was about him. I was mentioned in that programme, although... You know, just in a way that you know that, that I'd been coached by him. Four of us and me and was Gary Speed and Andy Inchcliffe and uh, Rob Jones were all mentioned as as international footballers who'd been coached by him. So I was kind of just hoping all this would come and go and and then, but when the police called, he, he, in many I think I panicked. in all honesty. I I, I agreed to meet them the next day in my house. I was always I, I was in Sheffield but living in Manchester agreed to meet them the next evening in my house and, and literally drove home and thinking I've got no option now but for all this to come out. So we meet, as soon as I'd got home, I, I you know, told my wife I needed to speak to her uh, and, taught, and told her that. So she was the first person I'd I told, sort of after 18 years and very, very quickly my brother was there and my my, uh, my sister-in-law was there. And so it was, a, it was a surreal situation, to be honest with you. The... the uh, Everyone was crying, everyone couldn't believe what was going on in your eye. To me, this was 18-year-old news that I, I thought I'd, I'd, I'd dealt with. Um, and in reality, all I'd done is try and push it to the back of my mind and let all the the, the psychological effects of it manifest themselves in, in me. And I suddenly thought, you know, if this is the reaction, then I don't really want to put this on anybody else. Certainly didn't want to put it on my parents at that point. Absolutely didn't want to put it on my dad because, you know... My, the logic there was my mum and dad uh, had been separated, divorced uh, when I was playing football, when the abuse was happening, and that my dad would feel the guilt because it was him that was always with me at the football. It was him that it was him that knew Barry Bennell. It was him that was saying yes, go there with him, go there, I'll tell it. So, uh, and I didn't really, as much as I didn't want my mum to know, I didn't afford her the same protection, which is you know a big, big regret in my life now. I called a, a guy I knew that my dad did business with, a friend of my dad's as well, but I knew I could trust him. And uh, he immediately just said, It's your dad, you, you, you're worried about your dad, aren't you? So I said, Yeah, that's a- absolutely what I'm worried about. And he basically said, Well, you know, you can say what you want to say to the police, you know, you say what you want to say. And if it suits you to say nothing happened, then you say that. And uh, And that's what I did. So back in you know, ninety that'd be. I lied to the police. They, they came round. I had a probably an hour-long interview and denied everything. You know, I didn't deny I'd been to these places. I didn't deny anything like that, just that nothing nothing had ever happened. There'd never been any abuse. He'd never tried to touch me or anything like that. And, uh, and again, I just thought, you know, it, it's gone. I, I then was able or found myself in many ways talking about it a lot more you know where it, it became good to to be able to talk about it so amongst to, to be honest, amongst good friends and amongst sometimes strangers who I thought I'd never meet before and I'd, I'd never meet again sorry if we were in conversation I would uh, find myself saying yeah that's, that happened to me or something you know and so you know and that became very helpful and I, was, I, I kind of got myself to a situation where wherever I was, it was if I was out socially there was always somebody with me that I could speak to if, if I needed to and I and I found that enough um my mum well my mum's mum my nan died in uh 2000 Obviously, a very emotional evening that night at the at the funeral and uh kind of with a bowl full of wine my, my mum and I, I, I told you know I told my mum as well that that uh, that night, and she you know she really really struggled with it, and as i said i I wish to this day that i'd you know I'd protected my mum from it and and had I made that decision we'd, we probably wouldn't be here, and the book wouldn 't be here in all honesty because my mum's my mum's still very much alive and kicking
0: what did barry bennell 's sentence do for you
1: personally that this sentence didn 't do an awful lot for me I think it's important to point out this book absolutely was not um a reaction to the November 16th stories. It was already there, and two weeks before we were due to have it finished, is when the 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 stories came out. Andy Woodward in in November 16, then Paul Stewart, and and in the book, I I think of a I, I, I saying there. Look, I, I, to me, it didn't matter whether he was dead or alive. It didn't matter whether he was in prison or out of prison. And uh, so, from a personal point of view, I suppose I can consider myself pretty lucky that. I did. I didn't need that, and I never felt I needed that closure. But having got to know other people involved, having I mean, got to know other victims who um, were suffered a lot, a lot more than I did as well. Um, and and it, when I say that, I mean people who, even people whose abuse was less than mine, have had their lives impacted more because you just haven't got, you know, you just don't know how people are going to react to these things, and then. So seeing all these other people and how much they needed it uh, means it's very very important that he got the sentence he got. Seeing him in court, although via video link, um, I was I was in court probably a third of the days that the court 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 was there. No, I, I went you know in many ways for professional reasons. In the end, Paul and I would literally if we if we had nothing else on on a particular day. It was just an automatic that will rally me. I'll see you at court tomorrow. You drive over from Blackpool. I drove over from Manchester. We'd sit and watch the court proceedings all day. So it it became important because of the effects on 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 the other lads. I I was a complainant, but I, I made it very clear, having made my statement, that you know I made my statement to try and help other people rather. I didn't want to. I didn't want to go to court. I would have done quite happily if they if if the CPS had said. You know your your case is a really strong one for us, and we think you're going to be a great witness. And I'd have quite happily gone there, obviously, but it I, it didn't. Uh, I didn't need it. I think um the important thing is because since November 16, Paul and I and, and one or two of others have been such a part of what's gone on and such a part of the the process. It just made me feel as though I'd contributed anyway. So and, and that that's something that we we were trying to get through to a lot of the other lads just, you know, feel part of this process. Only twelve people can go to court. You know, that that was a that was a limit. They could only have twelve people in the court for whatever reason. And I suppose the twelve best plays were picked at that particular time. And and I was able to sort of feel feel very much feel part of that. If we could have brought that to some of the other some of the other lads as well that that'd have been great and, and maybe we maybe it did to some of them but I, I know for a or not an awful lot of them they still feel like they've not they've not had justice which is and even the ones that were there you know it was there was a a real feeling of euphoria um when the original you know the uh the verdict came through uh, uh but if you know if it I don't think it changes an awful lot in, in many ways. You know, it still, it still happens here, uh, and that, that doesn't go away, even though the guys, I mean, I think now, uh, certainly four years in the States minimum, nine years here, another two years here, 31 years here, so I think he's been sentenced to 50 years in total, but it, it doesn't change what happens to people. Um, so, it's, you know, it's a, it's a very, very difficult one for, for a lot of people still.
0: What does knowing Paul and and speaking to Paul and, and the Save Association, what what does that do for you? Well, firstly, Paul's a, Paul's a great guy, um, and
1: it, you know, for uh, we obviously go back uh, a long way. Although there's a massive period of that in between where we, we, you know, we wouldn't have spoke for many many years. So we go back obviously to. Eighty-eighty-six when Paul first first turned up at City, I I wasn't aware. Even though he was, you know, he was suffering this abuse to a guy I was aware of over at Nova, um, Frank Roper, and and you know I was suffering this abuse here with Barry Bennell, you know, and the, the the paths were crossing all the time in terms of playing games. Not necessarily me and Paul because he was three years older than me, but certainly you know Nova and whitehill and these two coaches, the path is the paths were crossing regularly and, and there's certainly a couple of pictures where they're, they're, they're on the same team picture. Um, so um, the, I think that that's the biggest thing, Paul, you know, Paul, it's great to sort of reconnect with Paul. We, we, very, very early on, we kind of reached out to each other. I think our public disclosures were the same day. Um, and very early on, we reached out to each other and, and started communicating on Twitter. We both went to the PFA on the same day. Paul's meeting was a sort of an hour behind mine, but I hung around for him and we, and and then uh, I think we we then went to a city game together, and so it just got very very close very quickly, and it just became apparent that we were both interested in as much as this obviously was reigniting. This, this these stories come out for, for some people, something that's been sat there dormant for for forever was just being reignited. For other people, it was prompting. Disclosures, which were all public disclosures, which which are very, very, you know, you 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 don't know, you don't realise what's going to happen. Some of these lads have never spoken to anybody. Paul, you know, he forty two years, he he'd never spoken to a soul, and then he, you know, he did he does this big public exposure, which was incredibly brave, but has a profound effect on all the people around you, all your family, or, or you know, Paul's parents, and and uh, and um, and and I think. That that was that was the thing that they they were kind of re-traumatizing themselves in many ways, traumatizing the family, and and so they they people needed a, a whole sort of level of counselling around them, which which football provided at, at that point. But we, so we were a, that was a key thing for us, and the second key thing was, you know, where are we now with safeguarding? Can this happen now? Can it happen again? And and and, and I think Paul and I were both. It's really on the same page. We don't. We don't want this to be a blame culture. We don't. We don't want. I think one of the early things I put out on social media was: let's not this just turn into lawyers just making fortunes. And unfortunately, sat here sort of nearly two years later. I think that's where we are. You know, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm convinced that's where we are. I'm convinced. Well, no, that legal wranglings and, and this, that, and the other. Uh, Standing in the way of progress, and and that so that's what uh, Paul and I absolutely didn't want. We got together at Wembley with um, Ian Ackley and De- and Derek Bell. Very quickly, we we'd met three or four times as a group. We were seen as a group as a group of lads who wanted to to get things done. The FA let us in, and and um, and then we just decided, look, well, let's let's do something formally, which is when we formed save, which is safeguarding and victim engagement. To be dead honest. We formed it with a name. We didn't really know where we were going, what we were doing. Um, And then I... um, We we were certainly providing really good support for each other uh, and trying to do that for other people as well. And the people that were coming to us were not former footballers. We'd have our, our share of former footballers and victims of the same people contacting us. Of course we would, but the connection was really football fans. So we'd get... Uh, you know, maybe a lawyer would call us who'd been physically abused as a child, and, and uh, or a window cleaner would call us who'd been sexually abused, but in a different sport. And and so we kind of had to not comfort zone would be the wrong word, but step out of the what we thought originally was the comfort zone. I.e., we we don't want to step on other people's toes. We're footballers. We were sexually abused as kids, but it's not the way it was. The connection was. People who were football fans, people who were football followers, and people who were saying, "If you, you know, if you're brave enough to say, it, I'm going to be brave enough to say," it, which is which is great, but then they needed help as well. You know, they they were, uh and 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 to be honest, in many cases, it was frustrating because football was was able to offer help to survivors, but not necessarily to people who'd been abused in other settings. So that 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 was always difficult. I started to. Asked more about safeguarding training. Um, and, and it was British Gymnastics that people within British Gymnastics who put their arm around us more probably than football, in all honesty. You know, who, who invited us in, who said, we, we want to help you, we want to. Uh, so a couple of um, wonderful people, um, Helen Murphy in British Gymnastics, who'd come out of football and we'd originally met her in football. And Justine Carroll, who... who um, you know we're able to sort of provide that support and that network for us. And Justine was, you know, is a safeguarding trainer. She asked me to go and do a survivors presentation at. Um, ironically, it was my it was my school. It was the school where I was at school during the period of time the abuse was happening. I went there, sat in front of probably like eight to ten uh, teachers who were all on the safeguarding team. There all knew the stuff. And they were listening to Justine deliver the training and, and really going over old stuff, which is, you know, one of the problems with safeguarding training is you, you have to refresh it every two or three but you two or three years but you you're just going over the old stuff really instead of really sort of developing. I, I would say, and uh, that's an observation. Um, and then I, I stood up to speak and to be honest, you you could just hear a pin drop in the room. I just told them the story. Told him exactly what had happened, what the issues had been. How it affected my career and my life, and, and I suddenly thought, this is this is what we need to do. This is this is how we can bring safeguarding and victim engagement together. Um, literally got home. I, I went. I went to a funeral that that afternoon. But the uh, next day, picked up the phone to to Ian and and to Paul and Derek and said, Listen, that I think I've I think I've got it. I think this is what we. This is how we can make a difference. So we. They all said. I'm up for that. And right now, where we are is we're developing our own kind of bespoke training in, into specifically into sport. So uh, we've come we've come an awful long way. Although we've got some brilliant resources um, and best practice at, at the the top of sports in this country, so at Sport England and the, the Child Protection in Sport Unit, and and within the FA and, and all the big sort of national governing bodies. Getting that down to grassroots level is a is a major, major problem. Um, and we just don't see it. And that and that's and ultimately you can have the best practice you want at the high level, unless it's it's actually being practiced at, at grassroots level, it's, part, it's completely pointless. And that's where kind of we, 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 we believe the issue is. We we so I think there is still,
0: you know, being honest enormous vulnerabilities. One thing I wanted to ask about yourself is, I mean, I, I, I've read and seen a few interviews that you've done. How much do you think it affected your career?
1: I, I think it massively, it massively affected my career. I th- and I think it was—it's um, difficult uh, because, and this is a difficult for Paul and I—that uh, that we we both played probably five hundred senior games. We both scored over hundred goals. We both played for England. Paul played in an FA FA Cup final, scored a goal in an FA Cup final. So people kind of think of us as being successful. They'll they'll say and they'll say things to me. In particular, I think Paul's Paul's a stronger character. Paul's reaction, I think, is very different to mine. Paul, and this this is thing. Paul goes one way, which is anger and and um, uh, if you like destructive. Things he does in his life, he talks about them in his book, you know. So, um, you know, he's a he's an angry person. He's he's, a, he's been an angry person through his life, and he, you know, he's turned to drugs on a couple of occasions and had difficulties there. I just go really sort of introvert and quiet, and so I'm I'm the opposite in many many ways. And people say to you, "You must be so strong." I, I can't tell you how weak I felt when I was playing football throughout my career. 'Cause I was so vulnerable to criticism and at the same time I was such a, a confidence player. So the slightest thing would smash my confidence to pieces and I'd be back down here. And and you know, so if you speak to any any city fan, they would say, geez, at his top of his game he was nine, ten out of ten. Too often we saw him at five out of ten. That absolutely sums me up. And I the people who were regularly ordinary I was jealous of them guys, the the guys who who just you know seven out of ten every week you know exactly what you were getting. They were you know they were never going to hit the depths, but they were never going to go and get four at Villa as well. I, I was I spent my career being jealous of those of those people, and um, and and I think that's the best way I can sum it up. I because it's all relative. Something happens to you, you as a kid and, you, and your career just disappears, and, and you can every, you know everyone can say I would have made it. I would have. This is how good it was. And ultimately, you just know what nobody knows. But uh, you know, I would say, Paul and I did make it. And you say that's great. You you made it despite. But I would say, well, it didn't because I I didn't want to I didn't want to score ninety six goals for Man City. I, I wanted to score one hundred and ninety six, two hundred goals. And 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 I, I genuinely think, at my best, that's what I'd have done. I, you know, I I honestly honestly believe that that that. that that's what I should have done if I was free of all the anxiety free of all the um, the sensitivity to to criticism and I didn't have this overburdening relationship with my dad that's what I'd have done I'm I'm certain I'd have done that I didn't want to play once for England I wanted to play 100 times for England and 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 it's you know it, it was what it was but i um you know the biggest destructive thing was, was absolutely the fact that my dad, who was in many ways the best sort of parenting sport you could ever you could ever ask for in terms of commitment in terms of giving it time in terms of sacrifices to the rest of his family because he he didn't know about the things that he needed to help me with he he forever just didn't understand me. So that just permanently resulted in in this massive problem between us. So I was sensitive to crowd criticism massively. I was sensitive to manager criticism, ultra sensitive to press criticism, to the point that I didn't believe any of the good stuff. So I you know, if if there was a cheer from the crowd or they sang my name, it was like, oh, they sing everybody's name. If if like I got eight, nine out of ten in the paper I wouldn 't believe it because I, that it just suited me to be that's how I, that, I, that's the only way I could try and keep on a sort of level playing field so I denied my I, I assumed the worst and denied myself any of the good all the time, so invariably went into games feeling petrified I think would be fair to say, knowing that if I got an early goal i 'd be right i 'd be okay. And then I could be brilliant, and and that's how I was it. And and this is, uh, that is the secret that that you know writing the book made me realise where wh- where all that that was from, and the fact that I'm I've got this relationship with my dad where, in many ways, he's forever having a go at me, and it, it you know I don't, I can just remember sat in the car with my dad all the time him just saying to me, you're alright, are you alright? Why why did that happen? Why? No questions, questions, and I knew the answer to all the questions. I couldn't tell him, and then, and then you get then a kind of a resentment because it's like I'm doing this for you, Dad. You know, do you know what I mean? It's like leave me alone because I can't tell you. I can't tell you, but if you knew, you'd stop. And that, and so it's a, it's kind of a much more subtle. Effect, but it's just it's just as devastating, you know. uh, And I hope the other lads wouldn't mind, you know. In terms of a a relationship that should have been kind of the most beautiful partnership relationship in in sport between a a father and a son was just completely destroyed by one man, And, and that you know to the to the. Degree that the the day after I played my last ever the, the last kicked my last ever game of football, Sheffield United. The next the next day, my dad knocked on my door, and told me I was ruining his life. That's how bad it it made it. I just know that if my mind was free of all that, I'd have been that player, that Villa, player at Villa Park, the player, at, and 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 there's plenty of games where, that I could refer to and say you were that player that day, you were that player there, but. To, for me to have been that player three or four times, five times as much would have made an enormous difference in terms of where I ended up as a in term in terms of stats, and even stuff like a stronger person would have probably managed my injury better. Personally, you know, I would have I would have said, "I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm you know, I need to." So even would have elongated my career, you know, but that's not the person I was. I just was weak and felt felt weak and yet people say to me you must be so strong and I know there must be some strength in there and there certainly is a lot more now so I think it it was profound it was absolutely the the effect of what that man did
0: uh, was was profound I, I suppose you probably get sick of, an- of answering this question but but how are you now? I'm I, yeah, I'm fine. I, I'm I'm all right now. It's um, I, don't
1: know, I don't know how how, how good is, is anybody. You know, have had other stuff happens happen to me in my life that don't make life that easy. This the the uh, the stuff we're doing now, we save and the work I'm doing with Paul. If that all comes off and comes to fruition, everything we're doing then. You know that that'd be a nice way to try and put things put things right in my life, if you like. Um, reconnecting with the club and the fans has been good. Really enjoyed that. You know, and uh, you know, wish wish I'd done it whilst I was playing. You know, wish I wish I'd never feel that love, if you like, while, whilst I was playing. Would that you know that would have made a a big difference. So so get yeah, getting on with life. And um, in in terms of if if the question is, you know, how are you with what happened and all like that you know I I, I think I've been okay with that all, all the time you know I think if I was doing a different if I was doing a different job um, that wasn't so pressurised and didn't you know that you know to be fair most jobs you you know your dad don't come and watch you play does he and and, and hang on your every pass across or, or you know your, your parents they're not supposed to live kind of live their life through your work are they so you know i i like to think uh, you know I, i'd have been doing something different i'd have been o i'd have been okay you know I, and so i've, I've never felt you know, i've never felt the need to go and see a psychologist or any any of that i, w- I, I wish i absolutely wish i'd have gone to see a sports psychologist when i was playing privately but I was too scared of doing that because I just thought I'll get found out I'll get found out and then my dad will get to know you know I just it, these are the thoughts that go through so but yeah I'm, I'm, as, as an individual I'm fine I've, I've got you know a great family and two young kids and um, and enjoying what I'm doing you know it, it, I was to be fair I was stuck in a job I absolutely hated for from finishing football till three or four years ago detested it Um and and now, in terms of my, what I actually do on a day to day basis, I enjoy what I do because it, it bizarrely, it's brought me back to sport. It's brought me back to um, Man City. It's brought me back to football. It, it's you know, I wish, I wish I'd made that sort of career choice straight after football, but I didn't. You know, it, it was there's not, not not there's nothing I can do about that now. So quite bizarrely, the whole. Um, abuse thing and, and and November 16 has brought me back to where I want to be which is within football within sport and and hopefully we can with what we're doing we can we can make a big big difference but as I say I think there's a an awful lot of work to be done in in terms of safeguarding
0: I just want to talk to you about some of your career highlights now David as well uh, I think the one that, that probably sticks out is uh, scoring the hat-trick in the 10-1 against Huddersfield
1: yes um, well the, the, I suppose the games people talk to me about are the, the, the 10-1 and the 2 one so yeah um, well let's get, get rid of the 5-1 first because um, I'm, I'm forever arguing with Blues about this but to, to me you know it was, the 5-1 was, was just it was a, it was a great day we were, we were just brilliant on the day everything came off for us it was uh, but I suppose my typical <laughs> half you know glass half full in terms of football would say you know, Brian Robson didn't play that day and and uh, Steve Bruce didn't play that day and and, it, and things would I think I'm sure would have been very different but as, you know they, they weren't playing and we were we were just brilliant on that day we were, we were excellent and to be part of I think we, you know that should have been celebrated for Six months. It should, you know, we should have had a good fun for a week or two, and then celebrate for six months. And then, but we, we unfortunately we needed to live off that game for far, far too long, which is I, I find pretty embarrassing. When when I look at the, uh, you know, my record in Manchester Derby, it's embarrassing. To, you know, to be totally honest with you. And and they, I think that probably sums me, me up in terms. Of how, how but it just felt he just felt like we well, were going to get turned over every you felt inferior. That's how that's how I felt. And I think that probably came over on the pitch. Um we had some great you know, couple more really good dabs I scored two in a three-all. And then we I think Quinny got a couple and we got beat we were, got beat three, two. But yeah, and and to be part of the the Andy Inschlitz goal was, was brilliant. Because that, that I think that is possibly one of the best goals that, that that was ever scored at Main Road. And uh and obviously, people say to me that's the best cross they ever saw at Main Road and that's brilliant. It's it, you know it's fantastic when people say that, um, but you know we did dine off it for far too long. We, we um, I didn't, but I think the club did, and uh, I think within a few weeks we we, were, we got beat six 0 at Derby, and uh, the manager lost his job, and um, so there you go. The the ten one again <laughs> again I'd have to start by saying they were crap. Um, it was a, you know, it was a sort of level two game, and, and uh, Malcolm McDonald was was the manager, but it it, it was just a day again where ev- everything came off, and and the fact of the matter is that you know that that game is 31 years ago, and no no team in English league has scored 10 goals since, and in fact there's only two there's only two teams have done it in the last 50 years, and ironically the the other one was. Only a few weeks before, I think it was Gillingham, scored 10. So, you know, I can, I can, I can still dine enough for that. I mean, I'm you know, the, the last person to score 10 goals in in English top-class top, top class football, which is great, to score the 10th goal, um, which is great, to be able to say that. And we were great that day. And so I think I think that stands up in his own right. There's plenty of times Premier League clubs have played against third-division teams and not managed to score 10 goals. It, it, you know, it just doesn't happen so to do it um in a in a game that was in, as i say was in the the sort of second tier of foot, of, of of English football it was like, you know very you know still a high standard to do it at home and and again to to have three players to score hat-tricks and we the three of us have been back together a couple of times it was great that Huddersfield are back in the uh, back in the top league now because it means me Paul and Tony can uh, have a couple of beers together that, so that's uh, that's always a nice one so that was great for you know, so we we'll we'll have that one. Um,
0: who who got the match ball at one because this was back in the day where you didn't have the old multi ball system. Well no, we didn't.
1: We we literally back then, I mean if if I could talk forever about the chain, the differences in football back then, but uh, it wasn't multi ball, but we we used to have um there was a bag of balls that just sat sat in the um let's call it the drying room. Um we didn't touch them through the week. There was about six balls. They were, the, the, and they were the kicking in balls. So they, were, they were the match balls, kicking in balls. So uh, we'd, we'd have three. They'd have three. And the, and the ref would literally have a feel through those balls before, before a game. and Said, right, this one'll do, and we'll play. And, and as you say, we'd those balls would then come back in. We'd have one match ball and one. I think we'd have one spare because every now and again someone would do one up on, up on the uh, top of the kipax, which actually happened that day. So um so I think I'm pretty sure we used two on the day. Uh the other complication is that season the man of the match got the match ball every, every game. Um so the man of the match was awarded the match ball. The man of the match was Paul Paul Simpson. So three of us scored hat tricks. But Paul Simpson was amazing on that day, he was absolutely and and Ditchcliff, the two of them were down that left hand side. So I, I Hardly touched the ball. I mean, first half, I, I I got a goal very late on in the first half from about a yard. I'd hardly touched it. They, not because I was playing badly; just everything was going down that side. They were poor down that side. Um, Huddersfield and, and and the two lads there, Simo and Inchy, were just amazing. And um, so yeah, the, we we got to the end of the game. We'd already two absolute scorers. I got the ninth and tenth. Um, and I yeah, I remember we. I think Bernard Alford was I think that's when his hair started falling out because I think back then the balls were 30, 40 quid a pop, and he literally he'd already given one one each of the three of us, and then he had to go and get another one for Simo. so none of us know which of the two balls that were actually used during the game, but for as far as I know, four of us got balls but then i have heard other stories where people said oh i've got a ball from that game as well I know where um know get I know, know Matt McCarthy's collecting a few of them He certainly uh He's got mine, so because uh, literally, I, my, you know, mine was sat in a plastic bag for twenty-five years. You, you know, it's uh, never displayed anywhere. Three, I had three abstract balls that that were literally sat in plastic bags, it's, well, sat in the same plastic bag. I carry them from house to house when I moved, and in the end, I thought, look, there's people who who would would look after these better and display them better, so they've gone, they've gone at better homes. So, yeah, the ten one, but like, and personally for me, the 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 five one at Villa um was was just the day you know that that is the day where the, the, when I, I refer to the inconsistence and everything that is the day where that's the player i should have been and and you know there there are plenty of the real top players out there who had those days regular and if you talk about the you know the best player in the world the best players in the world are having those games every two or three weeks aren't they so um and that, yeah, it, again, it was just a day when everything came off, I think for most of the team, but particularly for me. It just, You know, I think uh, left foot first very early on in the game. Uh, Paul McGrath was playing, great player Paul McGrath, but was playing sort of, sh- kind of shielding the, the, the central defenders. He wasn't playing at the back. Very early on, I'd scored two goals, um, at which point uh, Vengloss, who was the manager... Put Paul McGrath back to mark me, and then to be honest, I, I was very, very quiet for a. You know, Villa came back in the game. I think they uh, missed a, missed a penalty, or which I can't remember how, the, how it went. I then got free on the right, crossed for Mark Brennan uh, in the second half. He, he scored, and then they were chasing the game. They would got one back. I think I think David Platt scored, and uh, they chased the game. And Paul McGrath went back into midfield, and I got two more goals, and and they. The real sort of pride that day was my, my third goal which I may or may not, it was certainly a, I scored my 50th goal for the club that day um, and I, I suspect I think it was the third goal um, and I think just that goal summed up all the hard work I'd done as a kid because I, I, I literally would spend hours and hours just taking shots against, we had like a side of a garage door in, in the the front front garden and I this kind of drive that kept wrapped round and and we had the. Um, it was actually attached to the next door's house, our garage, because uh, my, my dad owned the house next door as well. And at some point, it took this garage off the guy, and uh, and that and that was my goal, and that was my target. And I just used to hit it and hit it and hit it. And as I looked up, you know, Quinnie played the ball. I'd had a touch, and I looked up and I, and and I said, the goal, the goal could have been hundred yards wide. It, I just knew what was going to happen because. And that and that's when they say about we'll practice just making but when you get yourself in that mindset where you've done all that hard work and your mind's right as well, that's what makes the difference. And that's when I go back to because my mind my, I'd done all the hard work. Did all of that when I was a kid, did all the, the, the you know the tough yards and but my mind was never right. And yet that day my mind was absolutely bob on it. And I and I, I often speak about it now, and I, I may as well have literally just Bent down, picked the ball up, and just said to the ref, "I'd scored." Because I just knew, I just knew exactly what was going to happen. I knew where it was going. I didn't, I didn't know that it was going to make that beautiful stanchion noise, but <laughs> I even got that too. And, and so that was just the perfect moment. And that's what I always refer back to when I when I think about God. If your if your mind was at that place more often, things would have been things would have been very different. I'm still proud of what you know. I'm still proud of the fact that it breaks my heart, it absolutely breaks my heart. I didn't score 100 goals for City, you know. I I went on 96, I can't believe I can't still can't believe I did that, but I did that, and that kind of sums up where I was and where I felt the club was at the time for me to choose to walk away because I didn't have to. Um, on 96 goals, it staggers me now, it absolutely staggers me that I did that because I think to have. 100 goals after your name uh, is is a lot different to having 96 goals after your game, after your name, sorry. Um, so, obviously, I, you know, still in many ways very, very proud of my career, but, you know, I'd have been a lot prouder of the one that I should have had, I think.
0: Why did you, why did you make that choice? Because, I, I mean, I, I read that, that you decided it was in the best interest for everybody. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, kind of way to look at it. I just think um, it. I think I
1: kind of made that choice a lot earlier because I did not think I was playing that well. Um, my uncle was certainly bothering me a lot, um, and, I, and but mo- most importantly, the, the fans just seemed so intent on getting rid of the chairman and. and and I knew the chairman, and I liked the chairman, and I knew the chairman had the good of the club at heart. I I, I knew because you know I I knew the guy, and I, and I knew he probably knew he wasn't the best custodian for the club in the new era when it was all the money coming in, and and but I certainly would have found the right custodian, and and in the end, I think he just threw the talent, and because of you know the the things that were happening to him and his family and the criticism, we just got to a point where no, nobody seemed to care what was going on on, on the pitch and, and the, combine that with I wasn't playing that great and then we, we came back, you know, we had a really difficult end to the season because of all that, finished ninth, but not too far adrift of where we'd been, you know, we'd been fifth and fifth uh, and we had a lot of good players, you know, we... we Self and Quinny and Flitty was coming through and Curly and Philo, you know, we I don't know, I thought a really good players and, and we should have been looking the other way. And then when John Maddox came, the place just went stupid. It, you know, it's it, I can't describe it anymore. I think so. The chairman obviously thought I've had enough of this. I'm going to take a back seat. I'm going to put a buffer between me and. and that was obviously his decision and it was a terrible decision he made some he'd made some bad decisions previously you know he'd he'd, uh, I think when uh, when uh, Billy McNeil left and and gave Frizz the job wrong decision we got relegated when John Bond left and he gave John Benson the job just cheap decisions and and we got relegated but he'd made some good managerial decisions as well and, and this was, a, this was a bad decision but I think it was a decision based on trying to preserve and look after his family and um, you know, John Maddox came and Joe, he didn't, he didn't have any, um, know anything about football it, it was clear he didn't know anything about football um, which, which you know in many ways you know you might say well that's okay you're looking after a business but it's clear for example right now the people who are looking after the club at the minute clearly do know about Football, you know, they're clearly all over the football side of things, and so you have to. And you, you can't come sitting on the coach and being criticized in place. Just is never going to work, and it certainly was never going to work with a manager like Peter Reid, somebody with a the caliber as a as a, a player, and, and the 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 fact that he he finished fifth a couple of years, and really was never ever gonna never never gonna put up with that, and then. We it then carried on into pre-season and, and it, the manager got undermined a couple of times a couple of things got into the press that definitely should have done and, and were spun in the press as well were was, was spun as bad things for the manager when they were actually good things for the, you know there were situations where the manager had you know it had been difficult circumstances the manager had turned him around and, man, and man, actually managed and man managed really well but they were spun as just being lack, lack of discipline and this that and the other which they were, but that was our, that was our fault. <laughs> you know, there were a couple of things happened that was, were our fault that the manager dealt with well. But they was spun as being, you know, he, oh, he's lost it. it, it was, so, it was all of that. And then we sat the manager and then we bring Brian Horton in and, 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 you know it's Brian is a nice guy, don't get me wrong, but it, it, it was a, it was a step backwards. You know, and, and I would, in Brian's, fairness to Brian, the, the, all the managers that followed him were a step backwards from him but we, we'd we lost a brilliant manager in Howard Kendall and there was nothing you know nothing the fans you know I, I would even say you know if the fans had backed him a bit more you know uh, um, he might not have gone but I'm sure he, he probably would have done and then we had a really good manager in Peter Reid and, and and I just knew where the club was going and and how you know Brian Harton came and said um, the, you know, it was a five-year project. I remember watching it, and I thought it's ridiculous. This, we, you just, we just need to get us playing again. You just need. This is about the eleven players that are on the pitch. Get, just get us playing, get us winning, as we were with the same players, with the same people. And it was as if this massive overhaul needed to happen, and it just didn't. The, you know, it just didn't need to be like that. Um, and then to be honest I, I wasn't playing play that well I still wasn't playing that well but you know I've, I've got something else spinning around my head at the minute as well and and then uh, and th- that was the point where my ankle got pretty bad and I, I, was, I was out for four or five weeks and, um, and I, don't, I don't even remember that these I remember nearly every single one of my goals I scored for City I don't even remember there's a couple of goals I, I, don't, I don't think I only scored three but I don't remember my last goal, for City No idea what I scored it, and that's ridiculous. I I find that unbelievable. I just, I just don't remember what it was. Uh, I think I scored. I scored one against Liverpool. I think I do remember one one against Chelsea, and a cup. And I scored in a cup game, and I just don't don't remember two of those last three goals. I have no idea what, how, and when they were scored, and and that I find that mad. It and and, and it was so it was on the back of all that. And, um, to be dead honest, the first day Brian Orton walked in the club, when he addressed us all, it was all a bit... Aggressive. He was aggressive, right? It just felt... Again, it felt like a bit... You should have come in and you should have just said, listen, you finished fifth a couple of years ago, did great last season, let's just get back playing, lads. And it wasn't like that. It, it was like as if, you know, my way, or the highway, that type of... That's my memory of it all. And... And if you, um, and then he said, if you know if you're not up, my door's always open. And he, that I went, I literally followed him up the stairs, knocked on his door, and said, "Look, I'm not," because it, I, and, and it, it wasn't, it, it was just, I, I just saw how the club was and where the club was going, and um, and I was right, wasn't I? you know. At the end of the day, which uh, whatever whatever you think about that, you might think you bailed out, and, and maybe I did, but. I've given have given a lot to that football club. I was there since the I was ten year old, uh, and I was twenty six. You know, I, so I would got to three hundred and fifty games and got nearly hundred goals, and and not playing well. So I just felt, for those reasons, and for the fact that I just couldn't see that we're any we're going to do anything but go backwards. That I, that's all I could see, and I, and I. So whichever way you want to look at it, in terms of bailing out, being selfish, taking it, looking at it from a personal point of view, I think all of those things. But I, I think I would earned the right to look at it from a personal point of view. Reg- I, given then what happened with my ankle, I regret. I, I, but I regret it for the fact that I should have stayed and scored those last four goals. That's that because I, you know, I, Man City wouldn't have got. An awful lot more out of me than Leeds or Sheffield did because after that, you know, I was literally having operations all the time. You know, I, over the next five years had four, four ankle operations, hernia operation. I broke my, you know, it, it just went from being a player who never got injured um, and literally played every minute of every game for every season. I, I was oh, I was always injured, and so therefore never able to give my best. And that'd have probably been the same I'd have been at city in all honesty. So um, you know, club certainly got the best of me. Um but that that that's the best way I can describe it. That's that's what happened. I it, it took a while for it to then go through. Um but I just saw where the club was going and and as I say, for ten years that's where it did go.